Hi, good evening. Welcome to the National Academy Museum. I'm Marshall Price, the curator of modern and contemporary art. And we're sitting in one of our newly renovated galleries. Uh, the museum is currently closed for renovation. However, we have a number of public programs that will be continuing throughout the renovation. Before I introduce the moderator of tonight's panel, I would just like to say, remind everybody that uh, the next review panel will be April 1st. And on April 13th, we have our Richard York Memorial Lecture with uh, the distinguished curator, Lowry Sims, who will be speaking on Stuart Davis. That event is free. That event is free. Just want to repeat that. But you do have to make a reservation, so um, please uh, check our website. The moderator for the review panel is David Cohen, who is publisher and editor of artcritical.com. And David will introduce tonight's panelists. Please welcome David Cohen. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you to the Academy for uh, hosting us through their renovations. I don't think I've ever moderated a panel in a more freshly painted room. It's, uh, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll try to keep it clean on the panel as well. Um, fresh and clean. Good. So ladies and gentlemen, tell me if this is your first time on the review panel, your first time that you've been to a review panel. Fabulous. Excellent. Great to see new faces. Let me very briefly explain the format. We're reviewing four exhibitions that the audience has had a chance to see, advertised in advance. Um, we'll show a PowerPoint presentation just to refresh ourselves of the, the visual content of what we're discussing. The panel will review those two shows. Audience will get a chance to let off steam and sh share their views or probe the panel on what's been neglected. Then uh, we repeat the exercise. Then we go to that beautiful room behind us with those sculptures and niches and imbibe some wine and eat some peanuts and then we go home. <laughs> or maybe we don't. Maybe we rave all night at um, parties organized by the myriad gallerists in, in our city, transforming us into a, a mammoth stock exchange of art. So ladies and gentlemen, let me welcome this evening's panel from the corner, my furthest left. Um, I should say that all the panelists this evening um, are regulars already. They've all been on the panel at least once. Several have been here many times. And it's always a pleasure to have star performers return. So when you have three guests who've all done it before, you know that I, as moderator, have supreme confidence in them. Um, and let me also say that you don't have to take my word for it if you want to, uh, after this evening, go and hear what these panelists in different constellations had to say on other exhibitions, go to www.artcritical.com. Under the review panel, you can hear podcasts of past um, editions of this program, ably recorded by our sound engineer, Graham White. Rob Store, Robert Store, is dean at School of Yale. He has a career that would take most of the evening to describe in copious proper detail but we like to make it brief with the introductions and the credentials here. As a critic, his writings uh, are still to be read in Art Freeze, in, in Freeze, I beg your pardon, and many other publications. 
Uh, he's former curator at the Museum of Modern Art and professor at the New York University Institute of Fine Art. Sarah Valdez is senior editor at the New Museum. She, for many years, was on the editorial staff at Art in America, where she still writes, among other publications. Joan Waltermatt is director of the Hofburg School at the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. She is editor-at-large um, at um, uh, uh, Brooklyn Rail, and she is a contributing editor at artcritical.com, and as should be said of Rob Storr as well, uh, Joan is a practicing artist. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. Fabulous. So, Sarah, um, we have to do the original job of art critics before the age of um, uh, uh, mechanical reproduction, which was to describe what it is that we're going to talk about before we do it, because um, obviously from a few installation shots, one does not get any uh, significant sense of uh, Vodichko's uh, veterans project. Tell us what we were seeing first. Well, it was an installation in two rooms. The main one, I suppose, in the larger room um, made it seem as though, well, it had panel of windows along the ceiling, and um, it was as though a war was raging outside, um, apparently the one in Afghanistan. Um, there's a sense of waiting and urgency. Um, there's a soundtrack that has, um, there's some kids playing outside, soccer. Um, you hear people speaking, I suppose. It's not, I, it wasn't in Arabic, a foreign language. You could hear sh soldiers um, talking to one another. There seemed to be an ambush of sorts. Something exploded. There was a panic. Um, a helicopter came. Um, it was formally very beautiful, um, tricky to tell what was going on in the room. Um, at one point, a bullet came through the wall and made a sort of beautiful and scary um, hole in the wall. Like, um, And then the smaller installation was um, a flickering flame, sort of like a Gerhard Richter um, painting. And um, the soundtrack for that one was very quiet, and people had to um, lean in to hear it. And um, it seemed to be like soldiers talking to one another in trenches, but then it also wasn't very clear what was going on. Yes. Joan, did you, did you have a good sense of what was going on? What was, the, what, was the, what was your impressions in that space? Well, I think within a few minutes, you really got the feeling that um, he was reflecting on the war conditions. Um, I found the sensory aspects of the project very clear. I noticed that I was like really creeped out by the the floor, I kept thinking, ew, this floor is so dirty in here, and it probably wasn't, you know, it was an immaculate mm -hmm. gallery, but I had the sense that the floor was very dirty and that um, I just wanted to get out of there. That was my feeling when I got in the room, so I, I was impressed by his ability to affect my own emotional condition by his projections. Yes. So, Rob, we feel like we're inside this sort of warehouse-type space. We look, we've got these high-up windows. They're not skylights, but they're high up. And um, so the action is outside, and we are inside, perhaps where the... I mean, I, I get the impression... I got the impression from the narrative that um, troops arrived at a building where there was a situation, there were civilians present, there was then an ambush, one of their own men was down, and it sounded from the wailing of the women like some innocent had 
been dispatched in the process. Um, did you? Uh, did you feel that you were viscerally sort of present in a way there, or was it a somewhat theatrical conceit? Um, it was an entirely theatrical conceit, I have to say. Um, and I think one of the big problems is we, we who, we what, uh, we where. Uh, the, the, the drift of gallery goers off of a gallery district street into a space that is a simulation sound and pictures of someplace far away under intense assault or surrounded by life and then intense assault, just doesn't happen. The, the transition is too abrupt, uh, the clues are too obvious, uh, and the, the community, if you will, of people there is not a community. So just about everything militates against the illusion working as an illusion, and if it doesn't work as an illusion, then it becomes a very, at least for me, very problematic uh, exercise, sort of formal exercise in trying to bring the war home in a way one can't. Mm. I mean, Modisco is an interesting artist, but in my experience of his work, he often tries to uh, enter into uh, other worlds or bring one, the viewer into other worlds of which he doesn't have entire possession or entire understanding. Yes. Um, Sarah, do you, do you think that's fair? Or, I mean, uh, of course, uh, we, we all go to the movies, we're doing what we're doing, and we get in there. Within a few seconds, we're transported, uh, body and soul, into wherever the filmmaker wants us to be. Um, is it a failing of Vodichko that he doesn't get us there, or is it his intention to have a sort of uh, to be non-literal and to have a kind of more of a metaphorical sense of memorial? What did you feel? I really liked it. It worked for me. I admired him attempting to take us into the space of these wars that are going on, and um, I don't think that many artists are addressing the wars in any way. Um, walking around in galleries, you get the sense that we're not a country at war. So I thought. Um, that was interesting, and it wasn't like a Saving Private Ryan sort of literal interpretation of war. It was more of a psychological. Um, you couldn't tell if it was. It seemed like the like a psychic portrait of a soldier who had perhaps come home from the war, and it wasn't only the space that was happening outside of this warehouse. At a certain point, Obama's speech. Um, when he decided to send more troops to Afghanistan came on, and for me that was a very poignant moment that um, brought back that sort of pivotal, or at least for me, turning point in his presidency where he's kind of stopped making so much sense when he's sending more troops and escalating this war that um, he said in his campaign he wanted to end. So for me it was timely. But I think under those circumstances I can agree with his politics and not be persuaded by the art. I mean, the truth of the matter is uh, something happened here, you know, 10 years ago uh, where people felt under assault. And it's very hard to create the impression of danger or of threat or fear or all the things that go with being under assault. Uh, and it's also a doubtful proposition to try to create that illusion um, when on the one hand there are people uh, in the field of combat who experience it on the other hand. We ourselves have felt it differently, but we felt it for real. So then the question of what is the degree of naturalism or the degree of suspension of disbelief or whatever it is that's required to make it successful as art sort of enters in. Mm -hmm. And I don't doubt his sincerity, but I, I honestly did not have a sense that that even hit the threshold of participation that would be necessary for it to work as I think he intended it to. He, he's, um, he, he calls it the Veterans Project, and, and he has, uh, I have heard him speak, on video about um, uh, basically feeling that we who are non-competent need to have some of the sensation brought to us um, that uh, is experienced 
um, out there in the field. But that strikes me, I, I have to agree with Rob, as uh, what I would say, it, it strikes me as rather literalist and prurient in a way. I mean, we, surely we just can't have that experience. So therefore art, rather than bridging the gap with a little bit of theatrical literalism, uh, art has to try to do something else or else invite uh, the veterans themselves to, to uh, uh, stage something um, that would give a little flavor of what it's like, to, not that anyone need, needs or wants it, to be ambushed and to be... Uh, but is, is it possible, and then the question is, is it desirable, is it possible to create that experience vicariously? Now, I mean, I've actually had people shooting outside my window in Brooklyn, so I know what that's like. Mm. Uh, but it's not the same thing, I know. But to, to feel mm. trapped in a space, to feel that there really is mortal danger outside your window, is, again, something that one can know, uh, mm. you know. And, and to theatricalize it is, again, I think, well-intentioned, but I don't know that it is in any way successful as art. I took it, actually, in a very different way. I noticed when I was in there, and I, I was... I was first confronted with a piece and was like, oh God, you know, this war stuff again or whatever. You know, I had this kind of resistance to it initially. And then I started to look at the piece in terms of not its ability to achieve a naturalistic effect, but rather how it was affecting me. And I felt my own resistance to wanting to think about the war, wanting to think about all the people who had died, wanting to think about my culpability as an American in supporting this war. And I felt like in that way it was very effective because it forced me to confront my own feelings about the war itself. And I feel like just looking at the way that the piece begins with the very romantically painted windows, which are so um, telling in a certain way of his um, lack of interest in verisimilitude, it, it keyed me into a different way of looking at the piece. Yes, there were these sort of quirky poetic moments, weren't there, Sarah? The blimp going by, for instance, and uh, the, the, the weather changes and so on and so forth. Um, um, but um, it was very hard, I found, that, uh, to get away from a sense of there being actors. I mean, it's, it, it, yes, we got the, the quote from Obama, but uh, the actual voices of soldiers and of civilians sounded like middling to fair... Um, professional actors, rather than any sense of. Uh, and now, is that is that simply is that is that okay in the circumstances? Is it uh, do, should we not want, as you say, a Private Ryan style um, uh, uh, verisimilitude, or is there something, uh, despite the sense his sincerity, sincerity and authenticity, is there something a little bit cheesy about the whole project? I didn't find it cheesy at all. Um, I thought there was a poetic aspect to it, as you say. Um, and I thought it worked quite beautifully compositionally, um, the way everybody was in the room gazing up at these windows together. It was a sort of odd sense of other bodies in the room um, having this sort of meditative, meditative experience about um, what it would be like to be hiding, say, in this warehouse with um, some attacks happening outside, this sense of not knowing what's going on. And um, I thought that worked very well. How about the flame uh, panelists? Was the flame? Um, did how how did was there some space between the two conceptually or spiritually between the, the flame, which is a, as Sarah mentioned, uh, Richter thinking of uh, something a vanitas or a, a meditative moment, or um, and then we have the the more dynamic um, event uh, in in the main gallery. So. Um, 
Uh, is it just, here's a show and these are two works? Or did this really hang together in any way, in any convincing way, as, as, uh, as a, a unified uh, experience? Joan? Well, I think thematically it carries, it, it holds itself together really well when you think about the kind of eternal flame for um, people that have been killed in the war. So that's, that's how I took it. I didn't really spend a lot of time with that piece. It seemed more of an sort of iconic um, note that was sounded in, within the exhibition. Yeah, Sarah, did you, did you feel that there's, there's some, some strong link that it really works? Well, in that they're both about war, I think there is a link, but um, I think the smaller piece was less effective. Um, but I did like the way it worked um, compositionally, and the, it, the soundtrack was very, very faint, and everyone mm. I noticed was sort of leaning in to hear. And it, um, again, there's this sense of confusion that comes along with war and not knowing what's going on. Um, I thought the soundtrack was actually just vicariously from the other installation. Did no, it, I think it had its own? Yeah, it, it was super quiet. Okay. I, I, I saw on YouTube an installation of the same uh, video of an installation of the same piece on Governor's Island uh, in, in a former military, um, obviously, uh, a fort, and uh, looked a lot, a lot more um, affecting there, potentially. I mean, I think, basically, it's very, very difficult to make war art art about war, very difficult. Um, and there are all kinds of ways you can fail. There are relatively few ways that you can succeed. And the history of art doesn't have very many of them. Uh, and even the ones that succeed end up being quite debatable. I, for one, am a fan of Leon Golub and also of Nancy Spiro. And I think both of them dealt with these subjects uh, mm -hmm. very effectively in quite different ways. Uh, but there are many people who disagree with me. So the conversation about why it succeeded and why it failed uh, is productive. I don't think the debate about this one, and so far we sort of are in evidence on this, will raise to the level where mm. we will actually understand something different mm. about either this war or war in general mm. under present circumstances. And maybe that's part of the problem. You know, it, we, we should be more passionately engaged with the piece, more you know, a split over why it is good or why it is bad. But if it's sort of to be respected for its, mm. its, its sincere intent and then a kind of split decision on whether it's effective or not, that's not very much of an indicator. Or maybe it's an indicator of the, the fact that people's politics in this war uh, have been worn down to the point that people don't really know what to say anymore. But it must but, be said that uh, past wars have, have generated superb, great works of art. Some. Transformative. Some. Well, many. I mean, from the uh, from Assyrian bas reliefs right through to uh, the First World War, whether it's... Um, um, Otto Dix responding to it, or Paul Nash. These are some of the. This was some of the greatest art of the second decade of the 20th century. Uh, really, but, but against the quantity the of art that was produced about those wars, those are relatively few examples. If we want to go back to the, you know, the, the, the Persians. That's 3,000 years of history, hmm. and most of those things were about the glory of war, which nobody much makes pieces about anymore. Um, right. But uh, in terms of modern warfare pieces, there are there are some. But but when you think of all of the things that have been addressed to this topic, there are not that many that pretty much everybody would agree, um, you know, contribute 
Um, right. And it's just, it's a very tough thing. And, and since, in the case of the First World War, and to a degree the Second World War, more, more the First World War, uh, the artists who made it were either combatants or people who had been close to combat. I mean, it is Beckmann, it is uh, Otto Dix, and so on. Those are, those are guys who went to war. Mm -hmm. But if you haven't gone to war and haven't gone to war zones, and you make war off of the information about war, mm -hmm. it's a very different deal. And I think that uh, uh, Leanne and Nancy are a case of people who did that, right, uh, successfully. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, it, it, you have to do something different with the work, in a way. Mm -hmm. I, I feel that Golub and, and Spiro were making art about protest rather than war per se. Um, and that, uh, uh, in a way, it's, it's interesting to contrast this uh, Vodichko's piece with something like the, the, the paintings of Steve Mumford, which really get across actually the banality rather than the yeah. thrill uh, or, or yeah. sensationalism of, of, uh, of war. But um, anyhow. But then you could ask, is it possible to make work about the banality or the lack and shift in politics and make it a really a vital work? I think that's the problem that he's confronting mm. there. Mm. Because for me, the subject there really it really turns on the, our, our relationship to this war. It's not like the Vietnam War, which really mm. galvanized a generation. It's more like something that's being pushed away both by the media and by the society, and nobody really wants to deal with it. That's what I felt like he was talking about. Yes. Maybe so, but in the case of the Vietnam War, the reason it came close is that people were being drafted. Exactly. <laughs> and yes. the reason these wars mm. have been gotten away with is that people have not been drafted. Uh, and you can't fix that with a work of art. And you can't get people close to the threat of, uh, you know, violence of this kind, unless uh, in, in there's a chance that they actually will be sent to war. There's also the sense that Vietnam, whatever your politics, was part of was what absolutely part of the Cold War, and therefore dealt with something that was existential. Whereas uh, the quote-unquote war on terror is dealing with what's basically a nuisance rather than an existential threat, at least. As, as currently constituted. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, um, the new media's uh, the new mediums like to deal with the big themes, um, sex and death. So we dealt with death. Let's move on to some sex. Uh, our <laughs> next show for consideration being uh, Laurie Simmons at Salon ninety four. We go from um, we go from uh, uh, we go from a dark and ominous uh, space that creeps out Joan Waltermat to um, a space that couldn't be more bright and white and clean, though it may well still have freaked out, Joan Waltermatt. <laughs> well. Yes? <laughs> well, I won't say I was freaked out, but um, I went down the stairs and I thought, well, just let me look at this and see what, what it is. And I often like to go and look at work and not know anything about it. So I went down the stairs and I looked around and... I, I was really confused. I started to think about um, how real the fake is and how fake the real is, and this blurring of those two distinctions that seemed to be a primary subject that was going on in the room. But then the longer I stood there, the more I realized like how much I totally did not get what was going on there. And I, so I started to watch people coming in. I saw this mother with her daughter come in and they kind of looked around and then they left and I saw some other people come in. And then I saw this young man come in and he was looking around and I thought, let me talk to him. He knows, he gets it, he knows what's going on here. So I went up and I said, well, do you think these, do you think these um, subjects are real here? And then he informed me that these were the um, high-end Japanese sex dolls and I, I just realized how 
how out of it I was. <laughs> well, um, I, I, I fear I may have been out, as out of it myself because I, I felt these were, uh, I, at first I thought, oh, she's quite a nice girl. And then I thought, <laughs> hang on a minute, something, something odd is going on here. I thought, oh, how brilliant. This, is, this makes total sense because uh, Simmons has been so concerned with dolls' houses and fabricating the furniture and so on and so forth. And now she's doing something very interesting, um, almost a la Cindy Sherman. She's got a very doll-like model, and she's actually attached some bits of plastic to this doll-like model's um, arms so that it looks like a doll. And it's unfortunately only upon... I didn't have any young men to interrogate, so it was only when I read the press release that I realised I'd been made a monkey of. Um, Rob Storb confessed to us, at what stage did the artifice become apparent? <laughs> Well, I knew there were dolls pretty quickly, but um, like immediately. Um, I'm, a, I'm an admirer of Laurie's work, and I've watched it for years, and I must say this show didn't make any sense to me. Um, and so I sort of felt, you know, kind of like I wish, again, it's a little bit like Rodisco. I mean, when you play right on the edge of naturalism and not naturalism, what do you gain and how do you screw up the contrast and how do you b draw people in to a kind of doubt that goes beyond the question of is it real or is it Memorex, right? Um, and uh, I think that uh, in this case, uh, the seduction, if you will, of the photography was not sufficient to actually seduce you into the fantasies attached to these dolls. They were beautifully made images, um, but there were also some giveaways. I mean, if, if a very languorous, gorgeous-looking doll you know, happens to be clutching uh, Donald Judd's writing, you know right where you are. You're right in the middle of an art conversation, uh, one that Judd might have had some very pungent things to say about, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, you're out of it before you're in it, practically. You know? And so I, I saw a series of conceits or devices or ways of working with which I was familiar, but that seemed somehow or other not to be creating attention within the experience of, of the work. So she's, she's masterfully good at this. Her, her, her best work is as good as it gets in this zone, mm -hmm. but this was not her best work. Sarah, um, the blow-up doll as a specific object. Well, you can't really get much more of an object than that. I mean, this life-size woman that can't speak, she's literally an object. It's, I think, very overdetermined in that regard. Um, she poses this um, doll in positions that um, it's sort of like a sense of deja vu, like you've seen it before somewhere. She's got, you know the wedding dress on, sitting in a windowsill, or the sort of ingenue out in the snow. And um, I thought that was part of the show that worked for me, actually, the realization, like, I was bored with it before I had seen all of it, but the sense that it was all sort of already in my mind um, was interesting to me. I, I actually did enjoy the, 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 the gloss of the show, and I, I've also been a fan for a while. But, and, and I also note a very significant shift in gear in this work and scale and, and in, in finish, uh, really, that um, somehow actually the slightly um, the, the puppet show um, quality and the collage aspect of the earlier work gave it uh, some real tension and vibe and that uh, here that was quite knowingly sacrificed, I think, for something, some, some attempt to up the ante as far as scale and finesse were concerned. I don't know if she quite pulls it off, but um, I sort of find myself enjoying the attempt. On the other hand, one thing that did strike me was um, 
that the, the yes, the object is imported from Japan, so that's a, that's a literal fact, it's from Japan. But um, there's a certain, uh, it's a certain, because maybe I'm a, a Japanophile, I've, I've, I've got this sense that Japan is a bit of a sitting duck, an easy target for, um, you know, whether it's lost in translation or uh, Roland Barthes sort of writing a whole theory about Japan without visiting the country, um, or um, there seems to be sort of trading in a rather easy sense of Japan equals kinky, sen- kinky sex and artifice. Um, uh, Joan, is that a, a minor concern I should just forget about, or is there something there that you, you found yourself feeling as well? Well, I wasn't really thinking about Japan when I was in there because I didn't really know what was going on, but I found that the minute I understood that they were the dolls from Japan, all the interesting thoughts I had about it seemed to vanish from my mind. And when I was in there and I was trying to figure out if, which, if they were real, some of them seemed so unbelievably real, and I started to think about these young women who seemed so vacant in their minds and so disturbed in so many ways. Um, It was much more poignant uh, an experience for me, but then when I knew they were these sex dolls and that they weren't alive, there was no way I could relate to it anymore. So I wasn't really interested in Japan or, you know, I mean, one's always impressed by the technical aspects, but I think it's the... The thoughts that um, the work brings you that really makes you want to stay in there and have an experience or not. Mm. Let's hope it's not the beginning of a new genre called in anime. <laughs> <laughs> can I can I probe you, Rob, as to exactly why it, it's it's failing? Because you 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 you're a fan of the early work. Yes, what has she jettisoned, and um, can she get back to it? I, I don't quite know. I mean, it's very. I wouldn't presume to know what exactly goes on behind these, it's that it seems each one of them is calculated so much to uh, a certain specific visual effect, but the fantasy part of it is fluid and, and amorphous. I mean, you know, sex dolls. You know, people buy sex dolls to have specific fantasies. A non-specific fantasy about a sex doll is not a fantasy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and maybe that's part of the problem. I mean, I, I have no... Pr- I mean, I, you know, from the point of view of sexual politics, I don't relish this stuff, but if somebody wants to be transgressive, cross that line, and explore some part of the libidinous psyche in, in a way that is sharp and focused, I'm all with them, you know, at least mm-hmm. to the point of finding out what they found. But uh, this seems to me completely diffuse and, you know, set in beautiful uh, New England-style house and so on. I don't get how that contributes to it exactly either, except, you know, it becomes a, a, a combination of two set-piece elements mm-hmm. with no... Heat and light, or lots of light, but no heat. Lost in translation meets the Stepford Wives, perhaps. <laughs> it was definitely a Stepford Wives atmosphere. I mean, there was nothing there that really um, brings you to a... a it, there was no heat there. There was one image with the dog, but mm. it still was so dead that... Well, I found myself very distracted by the fact that I had read before going to see the show that um, that is her house where this um, doll was posed. And so I was just mm-hmm. sort of um, having, like, admiring the real estate. Like, that's a really nice pool. And um, wow, that's a really big window. And I was imagining her there, which was distracting. That's, uh, um, I'm, so, I'm sorry you told me that fact. I, I... <laughs> TMI. Mm. Yes. 
I, I wanted her to be living in a scruffy bohemian studio in Soho or Tribeca, and then, then I oh, could dear, carry on. Artists don't do that anymore. All right. Okay. <laughs> I guess that's your not fantasy, show David. With, uh, not they sh when they show with Salon 94, obviously. Okay. Um, audience, we've, we've discussed a couple of shows here, which, uh, as I say, broach the big themes, sex and death. Um, uh, I already saw one hand going up, so now's the moment to share some views. Wait for the mic, though, if you would, so that we can... Um, sorry to be bullying you left, right, and center, but A, everyone needs to hear, and B, uh, we, we, we're recording you, so. Okay, I, um, I just wanted to go because I would otherwise forget my question, and I um, was wondering if possibly Wodishko intended um, to sort of, sort of um, talk, maybe mention the fact that veterans are invisible in our culture, because, you know, and that's what I got from that show, that they weren't even seen or thought about, you know, because of our, you know, our government's policy with how we treat veterans, you know. I, I, you guys would know, because I don't know enough about Wodishko. I mean, politically, if, if that's that was a, one of his Politically, that's a very that good show. point. I mean, yeah. I, 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 mean, I, I think you're right. About what's lacking there in, I, a, in his exhibition. I don't know that this piece brings that forward other than using the word veteran. However, I mean, that's, that's, I, mean I, I, I think you're absolutely right that the veterans have been made practically invisible. Although, you know, I, 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 one of the most interesting art projects in this zone that nobody thinks is an art project is Doonesbury. You know, and Gary Trudeau for the past number of years has been working on the story of wounded veterans and it's been a daily feature in the newspapers and these are uh, strips that are then put into book form and handed back to people who are in occupational therapy units and things like this. I mean, actually there is art about this, but it's not necessarily in Chelsea. Yes, it's also uh, almost uh, uh, has outsider art category, uh, but status, but there's a vast amount of um, art produced um, either for, for whatever motivation and in, in whatever setting, sometimes therapeutic, by, by veterans. So mm -hmm. that may well be a fecund source for when historians do look for art that tells us something about war in this epoch. Um, anyone else on, on Verdichko, first of all? It would be nice to keep it focused there behind you. Hi. I, I saw it differently, that piece. Um, when I worked into the room... I felt like the viewer was like the civilian. And I thought it had commented on the heart and the soul and the psyche of the civilian. There are many people in these countries, they just, they were bakers, they just want to bake their bread, have their dinner, have their breakfast. The next thing they know, their country is invaded. They want nothing to do with politics. They just want to live their lives. And that's how I felt as a viewer coming in there. The mind and heart and psyche of the civilian who doesn't want any part of it, and you just feel helpless. And that's the way I felt in that room as a civilian. I couldn't do anything about it. I just had to witness it. My comment meant nothing. I was totally helpless in this environment. And I thought, again, I thought it was a comment about the psyche of the civilian in these poor country, countries, and they have, the next thing they know, their life is a mess, and it wasn't their fault. Any further comment on Votichko? That's a good reading. So, yeah. yeah. I always like to look at a work of art in terms of the future and its historical uh, reverberations. Can you imagine this work of art 50 or 100 years from now when it's lost its uh, topicality and its political 
um, impact. What will the audience think 50 or 100 years from now? Will it have any um, emotional uh, impact? Isn't that the way we judge a work of art? Uh, is, is how it uh, affects us uh, over time, um, emotionally? Yes. Well, this panel didn't rise to a great deal of emotional impact from, from I it don't, now. I don't, I don't so. judge my emotions or my intellectual response to work based on what that emotional response and my thoughts will be 50 years from now. I deal with now, you know? Um, and I, I, you can't make that argument very successful because we simply don't know what the pertaining circumstances will be. Yeah. I mean, we can think of works now that have great resonance that in their time were ignored and vice versa. So um, I think we... No, topicality doesn't necessarily fade. The great war art, like Disasters of War, like Otto Dix's Bellum, like the Guernica is... But transcendence is a funny word because transcend to what to where. If by transcendence she means that, that the qualities of that work speak to people outside or over and above specific moments, yes. If you mean transcendent to some aesthetic plane where history and circumstance doesn't matter, no. You know. But given the mediums of this work, I imagine that it will look quite analog 50 years from now. We don't know what technology lies in store. Um, it looks pretty state-of-the-art now, but um, I don't think he's thinking about posterity here. Um, so Laurie Simmons was the second exhibition we, we talked about, the Japanese doll and the uh, perfect bourgeois setting of Laurie Simmons' home, apparently. <laughs> Any responses to that show or, or probing? Yes, uh, if you come, the lady in the second row. Uh. Oh, I, um, I, I recognize that the dolls were artificial. I mean, that, that the subjects were artificial and um, that they were made in Japan, but I didn't know that they played a role as sex dolls so that I could just relate to them as uh, surrogates for young women. And for me, they were plausible. And I could um, see the, um, the role that they were being chosen for that was, had value. But, uh, and I could I even identify with the vacancy and the meaninglessness of their, um, the images that they were portraying. And I felt they were very successful in that separation between real life and the um, imagined life. Um, I know young women who are vacant and empty and um, real. And they could be portrayed in a similar fashion. Not all the images were successful, but I be, uh, began to identify and um, um, felt a certain empathy for the roles that they were portrayed. And so I felt it was successful in that respect. Not all the images were great. Okay, thank you very much for that response. Yes. 
I mean, of course, I think it, it could fairly be pointed out that the, the Japanese sex doll didn't, didn't just happen from culturally from nowhere or just from uh, the sex industry. I mean, the Japanese sex doll is still a doll and it's still Japanese, so it comes out of the Benruki uh, tradition. And therefore, it's, um, it, it, it sort of goes in and out of sex. If, it, if, if, the, if the doll starts in a non-sexual place, happens to have been turned into a sex object, and then is used in a non-sex way by an artist, or barely sex way by an artist, then it's sort of just sort of completing a cycle in a way. I thought maybe the show could be better served if the, if, um, the body of work had the men that own the dolls and posed with them. Because, it's, <laughs> because really, it's about, when I see the doll, I think immediately, gee, who is the person that owns this doll? And what are they like? And what is their mind like? That would be wonderful. They could pose together. It would be a, have been a great show. <laughs> but it was but Laurie. But it's owned by, it's by, owned by Laurie so, Simmons, though. That's... So where's is, where is Ken? We've got Barbie, but where's Ken? <laughs> I could respond to this woman in the second row. I don't know what your name is. But um, the question that arose for me, and I had a kind of similar thought when I was looking at them, is whether that vacant... Um, emptiness that you perceive in those dolls that you, you're saying that you've, you've seen in other women is a result of being objectified or not. And if that was what she was driving at with that show, that that, that, that is a result of, of being objectified as a woman. That, that crossed my mind. I found that was one of the more interesting things that, that I was thinking about before I realized the doll issue. Yes, the lady in the third row. I'm not Japanese, but I'm Asian, and I just uh, moved back to New York after seven years living in Italy. And boy, was I objectified. Um, I'm afraid to go see this show because I think I would be so angry. Um, uh, really. Um, and I think we need to address how, I mean, why is it a geisha? You know, why is it an Asian woman? And why is she sitting in a European, you know, home, um, that's also an element that, you know, needs to be addressed. Yes, yes, and, yes. But I, and and for, what it, for what it's worth, I mean, the geisha tradition is, is a highly elaborated, complex cultural tradition. And the store-bought plastic sex toy is such a fall from grace in terms of the geisha tradition that even if one objects to the geisha tradition on feminist grounds or whatever it is, you're comparing uh, completely different things in terms of the sophistication and complexity of what's involved. Mm -hmm. um, geishas are not common prostitutes. They're not just blow-up dolls that you, you know, mess around with. I mean, they're performing artists in an old, old, old tradition of courtesy. But this is a very high... I mean, I... I, I yeah. Agree with you completely, but this is a very high-end doll that she has. Uh, she's, she's paid a lot of money for this doll, and uh, no, I, I I I knew that might arouse a laugh, but I didn't say it for a laugh. I did actually. Uh, uh, no, I don't have this particular model. No, um, no. Uh, <laughs> I think the fact that she's got the certificate and that it was extremely expensive. It was shipped to her from Japan. She got a second one. Uh, she has um, made a whole. Um, Obviously, fetishistic and and and, but also, of course, tongue-in-cheek. Um, but nonetheless, sort of real scenario out of adopting um, this uh, doll as 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 a sort of daughter. Um, you know, one 
one could complicate the, 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 the interpretation by bringing in extraneous narrative, the artist is sort of very much thrust into the public arena by um, her daughter making her film about her and this being a sort of a daughter who can be obviously superlatively easily controlled. But um, that would be taking too far. I think we have a... I just wanted to support what Rob was saying about the geishas. They're extremely refined entertainers. They're far from prostitutes. And it's a caricature and a very demeaning caricature to portray it that way, no matter how exquisite the costume may be. I have to say, in looking at the show, there was nothing on view that, that to me, took me to any kind of tradition of a geisha that was just so far from anything that was on view there. I mean, but you did see the video outside, did you? I mean, that's, that's I think, where the geisha comes okay. in, which we saw here. That's, that's where the geisha does come in. But I think that was one of many stereotypes that the stall embodied throughout the show. There's the geisha on the outside, and we had something like a skate rat, like a skateboarding girl on a wall inside and then the bride and I think you know this matter of the doll being Asian is an important thing to address this um, stereotype that Asian women are somehow docile and pliable and um, things that can be had and I found myself thinking a lot about Helen Van Meen a photographer who shows at Matthew Marks who um, photographs Asian girls like prepubescent um, just on the verge of having their own sexuality and she seeks out models who are kind of quirky. They have strange features. Maybe the girls are a little pudgy or they have very quirky outfits. There's something that's always a little off. And um, their interiority, even though they're not quite women yet, um, is very palpable in a way that is so in stark contrast to what we saw with Laurie Simmons. Yes. Um, good. This is arousing some good comments. Let's have a couple more. Um, I just wanted to point out a uh, response to the lady who responded behind us and, of course, the panelists that there's a trend in art right now, and speaking from an artist who's around artists, that it's not even found art anymore. It's purchased art that these objects and so popular, use them in installations and whatnot. And, of course, you know, Lori didn't make these dolls. She purchased them, and they're not hers. And I would be interested, too, to see who these belong to of the men. But, of course, that's like a secret thing that we'll probably never know. So. Yeah, I assume this is not a Japanese artist. Nope. But um, it seemed to me that it'd be interesting to see a Japanese audience respond to this. And knowing that um, there is an interest in Japan of um, very realistic robots that serve as uh, attendants and home care givers, so that there's a very different relationship or perception, rather, of, of this kind of realistic, fake human uh, presence in Japan. And I just wonder if somehow that would reflect differently in a Japanese perception of this art. Very good. The Thank only you. other thing I'd say is that's a terrific version of Falling in Love Again. I love that song, but I'd never heard that version, so I would like to hear it again. And it's also interesting how raw it is in contrast to the very cooked part of the rest of the show. <laughs> well, um, there was a period when Oscar Kokoschka would take his, uh, his home-constructed model of Alma around, um, 
art exhibitions and parties and openings uh, after his split up with, uh, with Alma Mahler. So uh, keep your eyes skinned when you're at gallery openings of Laurie Simmons is in the company of uh, a very attractive young plastic friend. <laughs> Just to make the point then very briefly that uh, it's, it's rather charming, I think, that uh, it, when the city is absolutely uh, chock-a-block either with... Uh, uh, well, chock-a-block with young and uh, young artists and fairs devoted to young art and uh, nascent careers and uh, um, a, a, a sort of frenzied hunt for, 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 for youth. Um, and uh, that we have uh, a panel that just coincidentally seems to have homed in on the mature artist. The average age is probably, the median age is probably somewhere in the mid to late 60s of tonight's um, artists. Um, and certainly the oldest among them is uh, Lois Dodd. Um, and what I find extraordinary is that um, you can have a, a person of such a seniority producing works of such uh, vivid um, freshness and uh, vitality as, as the work of Lois Dodd. Um, uh, Rob, don't worry about the puddle. It'll look after itself. Um, okay. Having waited tables, this is bothering me. Uh, well, we're, we're looking at some still lives, okay. so okay. we... we Okay, so on Lois Dodd, it's a lovely show, and she makes consistently lovely shows, and what you say is exactly true. I mean, here you have a, a kind of, I have to call it, traditional post-war uh, New York realist a la prima painting mm -hmm. being practiced by somebody who's been good at it from the beginning and who continues to deal with it freshly, uh, who is in a very interesting dialogue with other artists of her generation, of whom probably Alex Katz and Jane Flarick are the only surviving examples in her generation of continuing practitioners, um, and where the sp specific decisions, painting by painting, area by area, are always pleasurable and surprising. I mean, you know, she'll, she'll take a little tiny canvas, she'll do a window with a drape, she'll divide the window, and then between the panes, she will paint whole little compositions in you know, 10 strokes this one, five strokes that one, uh, wonderful sort of subtle shifts in, in mixtures and so on. Now, it's what a traditional painting language allows you to do. You know? there, is, there is no novelty anywhere in these paintings, but there's freshness pretty much everywhere. Uh, and she uses this, this language uh, with complete sense of what is possible with it. It's responsive painting. Some of the things she does are very comic, like the, the green paintings with the silhouettes, where the paintings on the easels don't match with the, with the shadows, where her caricatural self-portraits in some cases are very, very droll. Uh, so you sort of start out by thinking, well, this is just what it is, and then you realize it's not what it is at all. It's a constructed picture with all kinds of funny asides in it. Um, then she'll shift and she'll do sort of this haunting scene of the, the road going up beyond somebody's house and then you'll shift and it's something else. It, it, it just, you know, it, it's not style driven but it's style informed and the style is flexible and it gives her lots of room to paint. It's a lovely mm. show. Yes. Uh, Sarah, was it a, a joy you shared or did you have some reservations? It was a joy I shared. Um, I really loved especially the works on paper. As you enter the gallery, there are a couple, um, I think they were called Night House. They were very Hopper-esque and yes. those had almost a certain narrative tension that the other paintings lacked and I um, found myself really wondering what's going on inside that house and I wanted to look at those for a long time and then the paintings in the gallery that verged on abstraction I thought were just exquisite. There's one... Um, of a sort of zigzagging stream with an almost abstract tree. Um, it's simple and complex and s confident all at the same time. Um, 
The other one, it, they showed a slide of it. Um, it was the sun being reflected in a pond. It almost looks like um, yes. the sun as it appears on the New Mexico uh, license plate. Oh, oh, right. I, I found myself thinking of that. and um, I found myself thinking of Charles Birchfield. But uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I'm sure both responses are valid. Yes. They are, of course. All responses are valid. Joan, what was yours? I guess we're going to have unanimous praise for Lois Dodd. Um, oh. Let me see what I can add to that. I, um, I find like I go and I, when I'm looking at paintings, I'm, I'm seeing where they can carry me in my own, my own thought process. As a painter, I... I I'm trying to do that myself. So as I was looking at those um, shadow paintings of Lois, I started to think about how the shadow is an essential part of being and how she um, is able to put forth an idea that we're not separate from our environments, that everything around us is part of who we are. And that connectedness with the world around us is such a comforting thought that when you're in the gallery with those paintings, especially considering the kind of experiences that you have even going on the train and getting up there, that the minute you step into that world and you feel that way she's boiled everything down to that essential relatedness, there's sort of a deep calm in your soul that's, that's really um, not to be underestimated. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I, I find that's just, uh, I followed her career well, only in its latter part, of course, because I wasn't even alive when it got going. But um, I, I have curated a show of hers and, and studied her work closely. And um, I've, what I find really extraordinary is that there's somebody who's got a language which, as Rob accurately says, is generational and yet which she's made her own. And within that language, um, from show to show, there's, there's always a, um, a significant departure. And that you, you think, you see a Lois Dodd, you say, okay, yeah, Lois Dodd, no mistake. And then you see, then you study Lois Dodd over the years and the decades, and boy, she just doesn't stand still. There's, there's, there's pushing what her painting can do and be uh, from, from body of work to show to individual works within shows. Um, it's, it is a very uh, remarkable level of accomplishment to, to, to have in our midst. Um, well, it's also a lesson in, in what the merits of not trying too hard. <laughs> you <know>? Right, yes. <laughs> of, of having the confidence to do something with a simple structure and then actually creating incredible complications out of simple pieces, right? And at a time when people are prone to wringing their hands about this thing and that mm. in relation to the continuing traditions of paintings, is each one of the paintings is sort of, oh, yes, there is, oh, yes, there is, oh, yes, there is. In a little bit the way that, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about this particular circle of painters in relation to the poets. You yes. know, and, and James Goddard's poems, you know, were always, in a sense, the same and always different and always fresh and profoundly formally understood without any show-off stuff. You know, so it's like looking at a, looking at a Schuyler poem. You know. Yes. Oh, that's beautifully put. Yes. There's also the, the refreshing thing about seeing someone who's been at their craft for so many years and what that means to have that um, amount of experience that you bring to the blank canvas every single time. And I I think that's something that that painting gives us here um, that we don't get that often. We don't get a chance to see that often. 
Plus, yes. the one thing is that one long frieze yes. of the garden. The eight figures. This, this, it's a very funny painting. I mean, there's these very <laughs> large women spread out all over the scenery. One has a scythe, one has this, one has that. that you know, it's like, okay, uh, Mr. Cezanne, you know, father of us all, how about this? <laughs> <laughs> yes, a very different sexual politics, both from Cezanne and Laurie Simmons. But, um, <laughs> yes, very. Zaftig versus something, I don't know. <laughs> Was that Anorexic. purposeful on your part, David? What? Was that a purposeful contrast on your part? <laughs> oh, putting those two together? No. Yes. Well, uh, no, no, these juxtapositions. I mean, uh, curators always claim absolute intentional credit for any uh, juxtaposition that works, but uh, uh, no, no, they're just there because they're both strong and interesting shows. Um, well, alas, if we could only have a fifth panelist who despises Lois Dodd, we could uh, ex extend this conversation a little bit, but I think it's better if we actually move on to Phelan and... Um, very, very interesting comparison here, I think, between two painters who each in their way could be called traditional, but one, but, and yet they, their traditions are so, uh, so different and so dislocated in time in different ways. Um, uh, perhaps we'll actually have more to say about Dodd when we actually apply our attention to Phelan. Um, let me kick off with Phelan and just say that um, I'm really just a little flummoxed and intrigued by her work. I, I, what intrigues me about her work is that she makes the kind of paintings that ought, for me, to be a guilty pleasure, and yet it seems, from the fact that she is there showing at a very trendy gallery in Chelsea, and that I know she's held in high esteem in the uh, art community, it's obviously not a guilty pleasure, but an open pleasure. And so, therefore, I wonder what is going on, or rather, I think, gosh, there's something else going on from whatever it is that I'm quietly enjoying about these pictures. I mean, with Dodd, we have, as we all agree, just this wonderful, fresh artist who's not obsessed about um, deconstructing the language of painting, is content with a generational style so close to Porter and Katz and others, um, who are, of course, equally close to her. Um, we very rarely mention Dodd when we're talking about Katz, and yet we always seem to bring up Katz when we're talking about Dodd. But um, when we talk about Phelan, um, it's not a modernist sensibility. It's a postmodernist, but and yet not really postmodernist. It's a, it's a sort of reversion to uh, a very, very enjoyable pleasing, impressionistic smudge. Um, what, what, why, do, why, does she, why is she doing this? Is it to, just to make nice pictures? Or is it really investigating something about memory and time um, that can only be done this way? Uh, what is her relationship to style? Is that a... Uh, anyone who wants to a soft jump in. Picture, is <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, first of all, I, I like this show a lot, and I think it's, it was interesting to look at from the point of view of the, of the construction of the show. It's kind of a painting lesson, you know? Um, there's uh, one painting, I, I wrote it down, but it's something called uh, Dark Woods or whatever it is, which is 
uh, a vertical painting with uh, stained grounds and shifts of tone and so on, and then some very raw, simple uh, tonalities, white and whatever it is, uh, on top. And basically, you're looking through trees into light beyond, but the light beyond is forwardmost in terms of the paint surfaces, and the through the trees is the thing that sort of dissolves. And then you have the other one, which is called uh, Glass Basket, I guess it is, or whatever it is, which is for Elizabeth Murray, by the way. That's the, who the Elizabeth is. Uh, which is this wonderful sfumato thing, which is all wonderful gentle glazes and whatever. Um, they're very different paintings, actually, you know? And the, the one that's the, the earliest one from the 90s is uh, a very smooth, opaque, pasty surface. And then there'll be others which are dappled. I mean, it's really, I can do this, I can do that, and look at what my doing it does. It's not just showing off, but actually showing something each time it's attempted, but I will just now interject. Um, I was asked to write an essay for a catalog of a retrospective show that Alan Feather was going to do, which uh, very regrettably never happened. It was in Texas. Um, and that gave me the chance to look at large bodies of work, and I'd known her work periodically. But when you think of where Phelan has been and what she's touched on over the years, it's really kind of astonishing. I mean, she, she started out making... Uh, constructed objects in wax and wood and things that look like chairs or not or fans or not. Uh, she then made a whole series of paintings which are uh, sort of, again, very atmospheric things, but very contemporary, sort of minimal, open things. Then she made a series of wonderful paintings of dolls. I mean, she's, she's done a great many things, and I treat this group of paintings as an experiment in the possible, basically. What, what is possible if you take X for a premise and if you then really apply yourself to finding the painterly language to do it. Um, and, you know, you know, I just then take it painting by painting, and there's some I would like to steal very much. <laughs> Sarah, are there ones you want to steal, and do you have an interpretation for us? Do, you, do, do, they, do, you make, do they make a sense for you? Some more than others um, I would like to steal. Um, I loved the paintings downstairs so much more than the ones upstairs. Um, and just in terms of subject matter, upstairs we had... Um, mantles with vases of flowers, and I found the subject matter there um, less interesting than the painting, which was gorgeous. Um, I found myself looking very closely at them, wondering how they were made. There um, were so many layers, and so much patience was in evidence with her process. And um, downstairs were um, bigger landscapes, um, some verging on abstraction, and um, they really invited super close viewing, and I thought it was so interesting that she left the bristles from her paintbrush um, on the surface of the painting, and it was almost, to me, a nod to this tactile experience of um, creating these. Once again, I went in, didn't really know much about the work, just tried to look at it, and I, and I consider this a real gift to like be able to go in and look at work that I just can look at it and I don't have a lot of information about already. Um, there were moments where I felt like um, the weakness of the work was, was when it comes too close to Richter and when you, f you feel the presence of that photograph too much and, and you feel that she really needs to um, distinguish herself in this project from the territory that Richter has laid out. But the longer I stayed in the gallery, the more I began to see how she was doing that. And I, I felt where she succeeded was um, on a very personal level, when she begins to paint the photographs that her father took and she starts to carve out a space that exists really in time, or I should better say a frame that exists in time where she's going back through the, the view of her, of her father, her forebears, and she, she somehow um, 
and she somehow makes you think about what it means to capture a frame in time. And she's working through the photographic moment, but she's also working through the way that our memories are stored in photographs. And we, we all know this, that you know you tend to remember these events in your childhood from not the actual being there, but the images that were made from them. And I felt like her exploration of this phenomena was um, quite intriguing. And it would be great if she would continue this because I felt like if she would keep going with this theme that there would, she would be able to bring herself in, into a unique realm and separate her project from Richter who in a certain sense laid out this territory. Yes, that's interesting because I, I feel, yeah, I mean, the territory in that he, he, she is working from photographs, but um, if you actually um, show these paintings to somebody who was... Uh, came on a, a, a space machine and uh, didn't know who Richter was um, and say uh, uh, just a generation earlier, I mean are they that far away from um, say Wolf Kahn some of the time or uh, other times they look like a sort of cross between Wolf Kahn and George Innes or somebody the landscapes especially um, and so then when, when you have things that look extremely traditional, in fact I just came um, last night I was sort of obliged uh, or went to see um, a Korean art fair in uh, uh, Soho. And there, there you have a, a vast sort of cross-section of uh, works, including works by uh, highly sort of traditional, uh, not Korean traditional, but Western traditional, or the tradition of uh, a Beaux-Arts traditional, one should say, more, spe more specifically, um, painting. Um, and, and artists who, you know, you, if if these I know it's it's the the old canard of uh, you know if you take it out of the white cube and put it somewhere less prestigious does it look as good? But I, I, if you took a Lois Dodd and put it in the Red Dot Art Fair, it would still be a Lois Dodd. If you took um, some of Ellen Ellen Phelan's works, its uh, scale probably singles it out. But I think to be honest, if you put some of her paintings in um, a Korean art fair with some some old uh, some 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 artists working in a very old paradigm. Uh, you 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 might let it, it might get lost. Well, no. <laughs> um, I mean, first of all, I think I think that you know, I have obviously uh, very favorable attitudes towards Richter, um, but I don't think he should blot out the sun. Uh, and I think also uh, the 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 thing that he is doing has a poetics and has a philosophical orientation which is palpable in the work that is so different from the ones that others have which are also palpable in their work that after one notices the similarities one begins really to think about the differences. I mean Richter is a destroyer you know uh, and he is a destroyer who uh, in a sense does not succeed in his enterprise and therefore what you have is the residue of possibility within pictures sometimes powerfully evocative sometimes uh, painfully so, but but he is not somebody who's essentially trying to bring back a tradition or evoke uh, something that seems to belong to the past. Um, I think Ellen is in a positive way. She's a kind of romantic, uh, and I think these paintings uh, are made with sort of a great love of the medium and also a lack of embarrassment at the the idea of making a ravishing picture of a certain kind. They're also most of them. 
uh, fairly indirect. They're, 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 they're layerings, they're, they're surfaces, they're things that do not result from the alla prima painting of the kind that Lois does. So it's really a different tradition. This, mm-hmm. is, this is the territory of Degas rather than the territory of, uh, you know, Cezanne or Van Gogh or whatever it is. So that, you know, just in the, in the technique, you're getting something very different. And I, I, I think it's kind of an interesting proposition to try and do this now mm. uh, and to do it flat out, you know, uh, rather than to try and frame it as a uh, mind game about art history or postmodernism or whatever. You know? But in the, even the very best moments I had with the show, um, it, it then brought to mind somebody like Sir William Nicholson, a British artist of the um, early 20th century, mm. who painted as if the, the 19th century and the 20th century barely happened. I mean, Corot was the most modern artist for him, and Rembrandt was his preference. So, um, uh, and, and, and others. So, um, they are—they are not really perceptual paintings. They're not looking at things. They are—they are creating um, image sensations from. Uh, 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 basically on the canvas as a sort of medita- uh, working on the canvas with the materials to create an abstraction from a photograph essentially um, and I think we never lose that sense in them well, people have been painting off photographs since, the, since photographs were invented um, and uh, you know making whole different varied uses of them making all kinds of uses of them and you know I, I think Nicholson is actually a very interesting artist but we know, as a matter of fact, that Ellen is not in denial about what modern art brought. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it's a question of why would one choose to do this at this particular time with this language? Uh, and maybe the, the person who just walks in off the street and sees a painting doesn't know any of that and possibly could get confused about what the intention is. But I think there's enough in the paintings, and particularly in the show. I mean, the inclusion of that early 1990s paintings is clearly an acknowledgement within her own history of a modernist adaptation to or of uh, the sort of romantic landscape. And then there are others that are kind of romantic landscapes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, that, that way of putting the show together was an attempt to put the viewer on guard that none of this is unintentional, none of this is without artifice, all of it is a test of virtuosity and skill, and that out of that can come... I mean, think, think about the American composers of the 50s, Copeland and all the people who picked up bits of the old symphonic language or bits of the old romantic language and then injected modernist things into them. It resulted in some pretty nice stuff. (laughs) I think the best of her paintings are the ones that really oscillate between your reading of them as an abstraction where you're able to let go of the image and then you're able to pull back the image so that those two forms have equal weight. I I found those engaged me because they kept moving, they were alive and they escape that um, problem of kind of romantic landscape. And the ones which didn't move there um, so much or weren't able to, um, their formal elements weren't strong enough or weren't um, articulated in such a way to allow them to be read as abstractions. For me, I spent less time with them. I found they, they sort of became stilled or stilted after a while. I would just add this, you know, remember not so very long ago when people said uh, that, uh, and they said it from a couple of different vantage points, uh, that uh, painting was a male activity. 
Uh, and some people were told that they shouldn't paint if they were women because it's a male activity, and other people told there was no point because uh, men own it already, you can't get into the game, right? Um, so it's interesting to see you know, an older woman like Lois Dodd, somebody in her early 60s like uh, Ellen, somebody else like uh, Pat Steer across the way who's generationally the same, and if you look all across town, there are lots of painting shows of great variety by lots of women of quite an array of ages. Uh, and the gender politics of painting have just changed. You know? oh, well, I, I don't doubt there's anyone who's going to disagree or want to take issue with that. I mean, um, but there was a time when this was a heated issue, and what's happened is that the evidence has mounted to yes. the point that even those people who would like to fight that battle have just given up. <laughs> Good. I'm glad they have. I mean, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, to be honest, why that that comes up now, because I mean, to me, the issue isn't about gender; it's about uh, about style, um, and um, the 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 pleasures. In, I mean, it's an immensely pleasurable exhibition, but it's um, it does not seem to me to be an inventive exhibition in any way. Whereas the other, ex uh, whereas say with Dodd, um, we I feel that invention is happening all the time within the compositions, I, within, the, within the works. I, feel, I, 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 I just feel with Philen that um, these are um, encapsulations of a, a, a rather easy kind of pleasure that comes from a rather academic handling of paint. I don't know that it's fair to apply the criteria of innovative to Ellen's paintings because I don't really think that's the terms that she sets out for herself. I really feel that this capturing of a time frame is something that's quite extraordinary in painting and the way that she's able to do that. The painting that really struck me and kind of brought me to this idea before I read the press release was the painting which has a vase of flowers in the front and then in the background there's a sort of black and white table window sitting in the back. And I was thinking that how extraordinary that you could like insert like this black and white scene in the back. And so I started to read it like a foreground, middle ground, background as though we were moving back in time and that, you know, in childhood, you know, being about the same age as Ellen, all, all the photographs are in black and white, and then as we get, you know, moved to the foreground, they're all in color, and, and you know, I mean, one could say that's innovative, but I, but I feel that that kind of innovation that you're looking at in Lois Dodd isn't the, isn't the criteria to apply to uh, Ellen's work. And by the way, I mean, there are any number of artists trying to do 19th century painting persuasively yes. and failing. <laughs> uh, when somebody picks up the idiom, yes, and becomes very, very good at it, mm -hmm. and then paints individual pictures that are arresting and memorable. I agree, it's no mean achievement. <laughs> I, I certainly would, would much rather spend time with, with Phelan's work than, than with Jake Berteau, who's also got his sort of neo-romantic shtick going on just a couple of blocks away. Um, <laughs> So there, I think it's a sort of very strange, problematic. But then again, strange and problematic are good things, and easy and pleasurable are not. So I find myself sort of responding uneasily to what I take to be the aesthetic criteria of the time. Anyway, let's, um, unless Sarah has something to add no, to that's no. Uh, let's open the discussion about Dodd and um, Phelan's contribution to the floor. And, uh, you can go back and forth between the two shows, it doesn't matter. We don't need to deal with them in order. So any comments on either show would be 
Very, very welcome. Uh, anybody? Yes, gentleman right in the front. Please wait for the mic. Uh, just a comment about the Phelan show. Um, I found the pieces, especially as they got more blurry, um, that they reminded me of early Rothko. Mm -hmm. Okay. Not so much Richter, but early Rothko, pre-1949. Uh, pre yes, the, the surrealist face. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, thank you. Um, anyone else um, on Dodd or Phelan? I just wanted, uh, we sometimes talk about the installations, and um, I don't know what's happening at that Grunert Gallery that doesn't get finished, but uh, <laughs> I don't think that they uh, did her a favor with that uh, weird khaki green that the uh, paintings uh, downstairs were forced to be hung against. Okay, the bunker effect. I thought it gave it a real edge, but there you are. It's a each, each to their own on that score. Um, uh, more comments? Uh, or panel, any comments on the installations of those two shows? I felt the same. I, it gave it a kind of edge, and I thought it mirrored uh, beautifully the kind of um, open-ended approach that she has to her work that's not all tied up in a nice little package for everyone. And I would just uh, throw this in, not to flatter David, but actually to compliment him, which is there are not very many places in this town where you can talk about paintings like this mm -hmm. or where they get discussed in a public forum. This is not what people are mostly addre uh, being addressed with. And it's nice that one can, because it is not just about honor due to people in a sentimental way. These are living, breathing artists making living, breathing paintings. And it's good that we can have something to say about them. Fantastic. Great. Well, that's a wonderful note. <laughs>